This morning, I want to preach to you on this thing, delighting in the law of God. Delighting in the law of God. Let us pray to God and ask for his help in understanding uh, his word this morning. Father, we thank you, God, just for this opportunity to go into your word. Lord, we know that your word is truth, and we pray, God, that you would sanctify our hearts by that truth this morning. I pray, God, that we will be brought to see who you are and all that you've done in Christ. And I pray, Father, that that will be uh, a joy to our hearts this morning and that we would all leave out this place believing, trusting in you. Father, we thank you, God, for the gift that is salvation. And that gift is ours through Christ. So I pray, God, that souls will be saved today through the preaching of your word. Not my ideas, but your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So a few weeks ago, we looked at the first two verses of Exodus 20, and we came to the conclusion because who God is and what he's done, he has the authority to command us how we ought to live. So at this point in the story, Israel is a redeemed people. They now need instruction on how to live like God's covenant people in this new society that God was creating. They are no longer in bondage, but they are now free. Normally, we think rules or laws prevent us from being free. Naturally, we think of freedom as being able to do whatever you want, when you want. That isn't the biblical definition of freedom. Henry Ward Beecher said it well when he proclaimed, true obedience is true freedom. Only when we are obedient to the word of God are we free to walk in the path of true freedom. Right now, in this moment, church, what is your disposition toward God's law? Do we delight in God's law, or do we cringe at his commands? Do we look at God's commands as as, as burdensome? You should already be turning your Bibles to Exodus 20. I'm going to read verses 3 through 17. I'm going to read the Ten Commandments. I ask that you stand, if you can, for the reading of God's word. And it reads this way. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. You may be seated. Church, it's important 
that we understand that God established a covenant with the nation of Israel. We see this in Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, when God states, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You see, throughout the Bible, a covenant is, is how God relates to man. A covenant was a very common practice in the ancient Near East. In regards to the different covenants we see in the Bible, Wayne Grudem defines a covenant in, in this way. He says this, a covenant is an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the condition of their relationship. Now, just what were the terms of this agreement that God made with Israel? What were the terms of the covenant? Well, the terms of the covenant was the Ten Commandments. God's law served as sort of a constitution for Israel. So let's look at God's law. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. In this commandment, we see that God's people are called to worship him alone, which makes perfect sense, right? There's only one true living God, Yahweh. There were many false gods in Egypt at the time that were worshipped. But you see, none of those false gods were responsible for delivering the people from Egypt where they lived as slaves. None of those other gods were self-sufficient, self-existent, sovereign. None of these other gods created the heavens and the earth. Therefore, God's people must be loyal to him alone and worship him alone. God tells Israel that they are to have no other gods before me. When he says that, he's not acknowledging that there are many gods out there and God just so happens to be the one of many. No, brothers and sisters, when we're called to have no other gods before God, God is saying that there's only one true and living God. There's no other gods besides him. We must be exclusively devoted to God. If our hearts could be seen on a large projection screen, I wonder what would be revealed. What other gods would be exposed as taking the place of the one true living God? Family, we are not to worship any other gods because in reality, there are no other gods. Either we worship God alone or we don't worship him at all. There's no syncretism in Christianity. We don't bring the gods of this world and try to bring them together and worship the true and living God. The Bible says in the New Testament that you can only serve, you, can't, you can only serve one master, right? You can't serve two. Either you'll love the one and you'll hate the other. Or church, I want us to love God this morning and I want us to serve him. The second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Here we see the prohibition of using any man-made artifact or image for the purpose of worshiping God. So you see, the first commandment deals with it prohibits worshiping false gods. But the second commandment prohibits worshiping the true and living God in a false way. You see, the nations around Egypt, they would, they would uh, create idols or some type of visual image that represented the deity that they worship. In doing this, they thought that they could somehow manipulate their gods for their own selfish purposes. And they also thought that 
they were brought closer to their gods. This form of worship was a self-will worship, which is simply worshiping God as you choose, how you see fit. Church, God has clearly revealed in his word how we ought to worship him. It's not our imagination. It's not our experience. It's not our opinions. It's not our representations of God that determine how we worship. Brothers and sisters, it's the Bible that determines how we think about God and how we worship God. Third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. In this commandment, we are forbidden from taking the name or bearing the name of God in a manner that is wicked, that is worthless, or for any uh, wrong purpose. Our names are much more than what appears on your birth certificate. Now, that's one aspect of our names that identifies us. But if we dig a little deeper, our name, when we talk about our name, we think of a person's reputation, their character. So, for instance, if I say the name Adolf Hitler, for those of you familiar with Adolf Hitler, you would quickly associate his name with the, with the uh, mistreatment and slaughter of thousands of Jews during the Holocaust. So we would say that Adolf Hitler has a bad name because of his bad reputation, because of his bad character. Well, brothers and sisters, God's name is not like Adolf Hitler, right? He's the, the transcendent one. He's the holy one. His name is above all names. He's Israel's Lord and Redeemer. He's Yahweh, the great I am. Sometimes we make the mistake of reducing this commandment. It's only prohibiting us from saying a few curse words or, oh my God, brothers and sisters. It's not a small thing to take the Lord's name in vain. Leviticus chapter 24 reminds us of this. It says this, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. God is very concerned for his name, rightfully so. His glory, his reputation, his character are attached to his name. To speak in God's name as a prophet or, or preacher and you speak falsehood is to take the Lord's name in vain. To swear by God's name, taking an oath for making a promise and then not fulfilling that commitment is to take God's name in vain. You know, Jesus is one who showed great reverence for the Father's name. You remember in the Lord's Prayer that we read this morning? What was the first petition that we see there? Hallowed be thy name. Oh, church, God's people must always be mindful of his holiness and his greatness because it will lead us to revere his name in our daily speech, our lifestyle, and our worship. Fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Here the Israelites were required to set aside a certain day out of the week as a day of rest to the Lord. The busyness of life is something that all humans have experienced in every age. We're constantly going to and fro. The six days that we labor is considered to be normal activity. But you see, the Sabbath day was to be different. It was to be unique. It was to be set apart. When, com when commenting on the significance of the Sabbath, one scholar puts it this way. He says, it was to be a day of holiness. That is a different day, a day set apart from all other days, a day belonging in some special way to the Lord and therefore live uniquely for him in a day essential to our imitation of him. God established this pattern at the beginning of creation. 
He labored for six days, and he rested on the seventh day. God's people are called to order their lives according to this pattern that, Christ, that God, he's established. Now, it's debated as to how the Sabbath applies to us today. But what is definitely clear is that we must trust God to provide for us, not merely the work of our own hands. We must find our rest in Christ. Looking at the second section of the commandments, we see our duty to our fellow man, which if you think about it, is closely connected to our love for God. It would be hard for us to love our fellow man if we don't love God first. Like the Apostle John, he testifies to this. First John chapter 4, verse 20. In verse 21, it says, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Our relationship to God and our relationship with each other should be harmonious. So let's dive into the second set of the commandments. Fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. This commandment requires that parents be shown honor and respect. Honoring parents is an important building block to the stability and the health of a society. You imagine a world where children just fail to honor their parents. That, that society, the foundations of that society will be destroyed. When speaking of honor, John Calvin insists that honor requires three things, reverence, obedience, and gratitude. Parents are given to us by God to be an authority figure over us for our good. If you think about it, obeying our parental figures can help us learn what it means to obey God, the one who has absolute authority. And I recognize that as parents, we are not always deserving of honor. However, it's not that we are always deserving of honor that God calls parents to be on it. Rather, it is the position of authority that God has given to parents is why he calls parents to be honored. Sixth commandment, you shall not murder. The sixth commandment, pretty straightforward. It prohibits the premeditated killing of another human being, even in the womb. Life is a gift from God, and only he has the authority to take it. Because all humans are made in the image of God, murder is an attack against God. So protecting life is the responsibility of every member of a society, not just uh, the public officials. Jesus, he transformed this commandment by teaching that not only is murder prohibited, but all violent emotions and intentions of the heart. Seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Here we see the protection of the sacred covenant of marriage by prohibiting sexual relations with anyone other than your spouse. The family is the basic unit of the nation, and faithfulness to marriage is the foundation for the family. Jesus reminds us that adultery begins in the heart long before the act is committed. Nobody just wakes up one day and decides to cheat on their spouse. No, that seed grows over time in the heart, and then the act is committed. The eighth commandment, you shall not steal. The Heidelberg Catechism helps us to understand what is prohibited in the eighth commandment when it says this, 
God forbids not only outright theft and robbery punishable by law, but in God's sight, theft also includes cheating and swindling our neighbor by schemes made to appear legitimate, such as inaccurate measurements of weight, size, or volume, fraudulent merchandising, counterfeit money, excessive interest, or any other means forbidden by God. In addition, he forbids all greed and pointless squandering of his gifts. Ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The Heidelberg Catechism provides us with yet another helpful summary of the requirements of the ninth commandment when it says this, that I bear false witness against no man, nor falsify any man's words, that I be no backbiter nor slanderer, that I do not judge nor join in condemning any man rashly or unheard, but that I avoid all sorts of lies and deceit as the proper works of the devil, unless I will bring down upon me the heavy wrath of God. Likewise, that in judgment and all other dealings, I love the truth, speak it uprightly and confess it. Also that I defend and promote as much as I'm able the honor and good character of my neighbor. Last commandment, 10th commandment, we shall not covet. 10th commandment speaks to our heart's desires. Coveting is, is one of those internal sins that can't be easily detected with the naked eye. You can't look at a person and tell that they're coveting. In Hebrew, to covet literally means desire, to pan after, to long for something. As humans, we all have desires. Desiring something is, is not a problem. The issue is we desire the wrong things or we desire good things in the wrong way. One scholar defined coveting this way. He says, covetousness works like this. The eyes look upon an object. The mind admires it. The will goes over to it. And the body moves in to possess it. He goes on, he says, just because you have not taken the final step does not mean you are not in the process of coveting right now. You see, throughout Israel's history, the nation would be given many more laws. In fact, according to Jewish tradition, Israel received some 613 commandments. But the first 10 we just read are foundational for all the other laws and commands that we're going to follow. The Ten Commandments are known as God's moral law. They perfectly reflect the character of the one who gave the law, and that is God. And let me just say this. God's standard of morality is fixed. In the Ten Commandments, we see an objective standard of righteousness. God's law is for all people in every time, in every place. Back in Genesis, God promised Abraham that he would give him and his offspring the promised land of Canaan. Their possession and enjoyment of that land depended upon their obedience to the covenant stipulations. Now, sadly, throughout Israel's history, we see a pattern of rebellion, disobedience to God's law. And this led them to defiling the land. Ultimately, it led them from being, it led them to, it led to them being evicted from the land. I remember many years ago when I moved out of my parents' house to my first apartment. You know, when you move into an apartment, you have to sign a, a rental agreement, right? So I make my way to the to rental office, sign a rental agreement. And if you've ever signed a rental, a rental agreement before, you know there's a line that says, if you don't do all that is required, if you don't abide by these rules, you will be evicted, right? You will be evicted from your home. 
Well, brothers and sisters, Israel didn't fulfill their terms of the agreement. They were evicted from the land. Brothers and sisters, there is no home for lawbreakers in God's kingdom. We violate the covenant, and God evicts us from the land. So what hope do we have? I'll tell you this, our hope is not in the law. Our hope is in Christ. A legalistic person, he once asked Jesus, he said this, and he asked him a very important question. He says, how do I inherit eternal life? Right? What must I do to be saved? How do I make it to the promised land that is heaven? And Jesus' response was very simple. He basically told him, follow the law. Jesus then summarized God's whole law with two simple commands. He told this man, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which sums up the first four commandments that we, that we just read. Right? The first four commandments deal with our relationship to God. It deals with our duty to God. And they come first. It's not a coincidence that they come first because that is our greatest relationship that one can have in this world, is our relationship with God. It's our greatest duty that one can have in this world. Second thing Jesus told him, he says to love neighbor as yourself, which covers commandments 5 through 10 that we read. Now, in no way was Jesus saying to this man that he could earn salvation by the law. He can't. We can't. And that was the point. Jesus was pointing to himself because the law points to him. Jesus is the only human who ever perfectly obeyed God's law. He fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. And when he died on the cross, Jesus took the curse of the law that belongs to the lawbreakers, which is us. He bore the entire judgment of God for you and for me. And he rose again victoriously three days later. And he calls everyone everywhere to turn from their sins and to turn toward him in faith to receive the free gift that is salvation. Ladies and gentlemen, that's how we're saved. That's how we receive the promised land. It's not because of what we do. It's not because of our ability to keep the law, but it's based solely on what Christ has done. Everything hangs on him. So Jesus, he did what what Israel failed to do, and he did what we failed to do. He perfectly obeyed God's law. Now, the question of importance that we face today as Christians, now that we are no longer under law, but under grace, is does God's law still apply to us today? As New Covenant Christians, does God's law apply to us today some thousand years later? On August the 28th, 2022, does it still apply? Well, the Bible answered that question, just like you said, Tony, it's yes. God's moral law still applies to Christians today. But what is the place of the law in our life as New Covenant Christians? Since God's law still applies to us today, I want to share with you four truths, four truths that will help us to delight in God's law. Number one, God's law is good. We tend to delight in things that are good for us. Some delight in their work. Some delight in spending time with family. Some delight in uh, reading a good book or watching a good movie. Some might delight in watching the Baltimore Orioles play. They on fire. They, they, they doing very well this year. We one game out of the wild card. 
It's almost football season. Football season is upon us. Some might delight in watching the Baltimore Ravens. I know my cousin Tim does. Got his Raven hat on right now. I think we might win the Super Bowl this year, too. But that's a, that's a different story. The psalmist, on several occasions, says that his delight was in the law of God. One occasion, he even said that he loved the law of God. Psalm 119, verse 35, it says, Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Psalm 19, verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. I think the reason why the psalmist took delight in the law of God and why he loved the law of God is because he came to the simple truth that God's law is good. It's good. Can you imagine for a second living in a world where everyone took delight in God's law and actually obeyed it? There would be no reason for me to lock my house up at night, to lock my car doors. There would be no reason for us to spend money on weapons. There will be no laws needed for, uh, for fraud protection and, and copyright laws and things like that. There will be no reason for me to look over my shoulder when I withdraw money out of the ATM, right? The law helps to maintain order in this world. Now, although the law can't change a person's heart, it does to some extent inhibit lawlessness, and it restrains ev- the evil acts that people commit with its threatening of judgment for breaking the law. I love the conclusion that Paul came to regarding uh, God's law. He says this, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Brothers and sisters, God's law is good because it comes from his own nature. Think of God's law as his likeness, his likeness expressed in precepts and commandments. Church, God is good. And therefore, the commandments he gave us are good. For every good and perfect thing comes from above. This good law should be our delight, and we should obey it. Number two, God's law is a mirror. This morning, as I was getting ready, looking to the mirror, make sure my hair was good, brushed it a little bit. I don't have a lot of hair, but, you know, I want to make sure it's brushed. It's just not, you know, all over the place. Right? Made sure my face was clean. Made sure my teeth was clean. Wanted to make sure I didn't have any stains, you know, on my clothes. A mirror reflects our image. Well, when we stare into the mirror that is God's law, it reflects two things. One, it reflects who God is. As we look into God's law, we see his perfect righteousness. We see his holiness. The psalmist testifies to this. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 9. The law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. This holy God has called us to live by his righteous standard, which brings me to the second thing that we see when we look into the mirror of God's law. It reflects our sinful condition. Paul puts it this way, Romans chapter 7, verse 7. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. As we see God's holiness and his righteous standard revealed in his law, we see that we are sinners and that we fail miserably to live up to that standard. 
God will never lower his righteous standing. It is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the reason it is the same yesterday, today, and forever is because he is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. This is why through works of the law, no one will ever be justified in God's sight. Because through the law come knowledge of sin. Quick observation about God's law. If you notice, there's a negative character to the commands. You ever wonder why that is? Well, it's because sinful people need to be told what not to do. Because we're always inclined to do the very thing that we shouldn't do. I'm thankful that the law shows us our sinful condition. You see, sin has infected us all, and none of us can do anything to remedy the sinful condition that we were born into this world with. This brings me to my third point about the law, and that is this. God's law drives us to Christ. Those who are sick, they feel their need to be healed. Sickly people know that they are sick, and most times they seek a remedy for their condition. Well, the law reveals our sinful condition. It shows us that we stand condemned before a holy God. The law calls us to, it causes us to feel the burden of trying to justify ourselves before God as it constantly screams, guilty, guilty, guilty. James puts it this way. He says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. This is why I'm grateful for God's law, because it shows us our total inability to save ourselves. But it doesn't leave us there. It leads us to the solution, and that's Christ. Listen to what Paul says to the Galatians in chapter 3, verse 19, uh, chapter 3, verses 19 through 24. Paul says this, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, the intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law in prison until the coming faith would be revealed. Verse 24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Yeah. Paul, if you notice, he likens the law to a guardian, which during that time, a guardian was a slave who was responsible for taking care of the master's children. They took the child to and from school. They watched over their behavior. At home, it is said that these guardians were very strict disciplinarians, and those under their care were always yearning for the day that they will be free. They were yearning to be free. Now, we all had that family member where, if you remember when you were little and you got dropped off over that family member house, like you couldn't do nothing at that house. Every time you tried to do something, like try to have fun or something, it was, no, don't do this, don't do that do this. I don't know. You might be that family member, right? But Paul's point is this. He's saying that the law was that family member. The law was that guardian that pointed us 
to Christ. You see, the law, it drives us to the gospel. It causes us to seek after the cure for our sinful condition, and that is Christ Jesus. Jesus has freed us from the curse of the law. If you're not a Christian, that means you're still under the curse of the law. And my friend, that is a great big old burden for you to carry, one that you were never meant to carry. But you see, the good news of the gospel is that Christ has stood in your place. He was numbered with the transgressors. The one who knew no sin became became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. If you're still carrying around the burden of trying to save yourself by following God's law, by doing good works, by uh, adopting some form of religion, my friend, Jesus is inviting you today to give that burden to him. For this Jesus tells us, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do not leave out of here today carrying that burden. Give it to Christ. Lastly, obeying God's law is who we are as Christians. Obeying God's law is who we are as Christians. You see, before God gives the Ten Commandments to the nation of Israel in chapter 20, something significant happened in chapter 19. Well, what happened in chapter 19? Well, God enters into a covenant with the people of Israel, as we read earlier. And he tells them that they will now be his treasured people, that they will now be a a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He gives the commandments to a people to whom he had already established a relationship with. Why is this important? Well, you see, the Ten Commandments weren't given as a means to enter into that relationship. Israel was invited into a relationship with God by grace alone. God's law set Israel apart from other nations. God didn't give his law to the Amalekites or to the Amorites. He gave it to his people. He gave it to the people of Israel. God was creating a new people that was holy, that was to represent God to the other nations through the holy lives they lived in obedience to his law. Now, sadly, Israel failed to keep God's commands. You see, the law written on tablets of stone brought death to Israel. It condemned Israel. It condemns us today. The law was never intended as a means to earn God's favor. The law could never save us. The very righteousness that the law demands, it could never produce it in us. You see, Israel kept transgressing the old covenant. So God, in his grace, he makes a new covenant. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, it says this. It talks about the new covenant. It says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And then in chapter 32 
of Jeremiah, verses 39 through 40, says, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. Verse 40, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. That's the new covenant. In the new covenant, God promises to give us a new heart. And we need a new heart because the old heart is sinful. It's defective. The old heart cannot submit to God's law. In the new covenant, we have been given a a heart that has God's law written on it. When a person puts their faith in Christ, God gives them a heart that now delights in the law of God. God's law is now woven into that person's spiritual DNA. We now have a heart that loves God and loves neighbor. The Holy Spirit conforms our heart to God's law. And we say with the psalmist, oh, how I love your law. It is my delight. To obey God's laws, to show the world what it means to be made in the image of God. Man was created to reflect God's image. No man has ever reflected God's image perfectly except Christ. Paul says this about Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, meaning he is the exact copy or likeness of God. You want to know what God is like? Study the life of Christ. Read through the Gospels. See his grace. See his compassion, his mercy, his love, his gentleness, his patience, his strength, his sacrifice. Christ is the exact imprint of the Father's nature. This new heart given to us empowers us to live a life of faith in the one who perfectly obeyed God's commands. You see, Jesus fulfilled the law of God. Our life is united to him. His obedience becomes our obedience. Therefore, church is God's covenant people. Let's glory in our Redeemer, whose priceless blood has ransomed me. Mine was the sin that drove the bitterness and hung him on that judgment tree. So let us glory in our Redeemer, who crushed the power of sin and death, my only Savior, but for the holy judge. Praise him, the Lamb who is my righteousness. He's the lamb who is my righteousness. The law can never make us righteous. Only Christ can do that. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son to do something that we could never do, not even on our best day. We thank you for the righteousness that is Jesus Christ. And we thank you for laying that righteousness to our account that we might be counted righteous before you. Father, I pray that as we leave this place, that we would trust in you, that we would delight in your law, for your law leads us to Christ. And I pray that we would just continue to glory in our Redeemer, the one who has won it all for us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.